Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to be a thought-provoking journey through the scriptures. Every weekday, my friend and fellow pastor Barney Estes and I walk through the Word of God verse by verse. As always, we'd love to know your thoughts about today's episode. You can hit us up at Pierce Point Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So today we're rolling into Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 19, and we are going to conclude uh, the whole chapter, or the yeah, this whole chapter today, um, but there is a lot that we're going to want to um, you know, venture into and, uh, and try to get through. So if we start this out in, uh, in this confrontation with the scribes and the chief priests about taxes, what stands out to you in in that location, sir? Okay. Well, it's uh, as you said. There's a lot in this in this uh, uh, batch of uh, scripture here, and we read on, from yesterday's podcast that that we saw that the that the intention of the chief priests and the scribes were was to they wanted to get Jesus. That was their that was their goal, and. Rolling right into twenty, uh, they they the 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 spies and who pretended to be righteous. <laughs> I don't know that it's, that's only spies, but uh, there are a Amen. lot of folks that <laughs> pretend to be righteous. But their idea was that they might catch him in in some statement. It says so that they could they could deli- de- deliver him to the authority of the governor. So their intent was clear here. Yeah. And uh, that and and Jesus, you I think we'll see here in just shortly that he understood what they were about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so throughout these uh, uh, interactions with the Pharisees, Sadducees, with scribes, with chief priests, with these different people, and we're gonna we're gonna add another category to that today with the Sadducees. But with the interaction uh, among these different people groups, uh, it is common especially after Jesus's triumphal entry, that they plotted to kill him. They're just looking for a way to get rid of this uh, rabble rouser, right? He's he's a troublemaker for their systems. Mm -hmm. Now, what I find intriguing about this is that in this situation, they seem to be uh, at their wit's end in in, uh, calling out his... Uh, his blasphemy. They want they want to trump him up on charges of blasphemy, which they can't seem to get uh, to do. They can't mm-hmm. seem to accomplish mm-hmm. this. So now they they seem to turn to try to incite the Roman world against yes. him. Right? You notice this crazy idea where it says uh, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour and they feared the people for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies. So these spies were on their behalf, yeah. sent spies to pretend to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. Now, here's what I believe we can conclude about those spies. They were pretending Pretending to be righteous, that's that's inductive, right? We see mm-hmm. that from the text of Scripture. But it's amazing that, that uh, when we attach the governance piece, when we attach the Roman world and the issue of taxes, these spies were most likely... Roman officials, Mm -hmm. that they had worked together and said, we've got a problem here and we want to point uh, point out to you 
somebody who's actually a traitor of sorts. So they send the spies to pretend to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So so if they've got the word of some spies that happen to have political ties, then they're going to have a direct shot to the governor. Mm-hmm. They're really mad at Jesus. So now oh. they go to political means mm-hmm. to dr- deliver yes. him up. And, and the... the the interesting piece is that while they these guys hated the Romans, they used the Romans many times, and the Romans used them. I'm talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, because they kept they somewhat kept them in power. the The Romans knew that the that the Pharisees and the scribes were not going to start some big revolt, but then the scribes and the Pharisees knew that that if somebody got too out of hand, they could turn someone over to the Romans, and they would probably kill them. Absolutely. So. It's it's it is very interesting that now you see that uh, they're somewhat have uh, partnered up with with the Romans and they figured that they couldn't catch him in their own law. They couldn't catch anything that he said so far in their own law and even in their oral law, they couldn't catch him in anything. So the best they could go for now was to catch him in something that was against the Roman the Roman government. Yes. And then they knew they had him because the Romans wouldn't play around yes. with him. So if I'm putting this into kind of our world, uh, 21st century world, uh, I'm not trying to read anything into the text. I'm just trying to think about how it happens today. Uh, in this day, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the chief priests, they couldn't back Jesus into a corner uh, that defied what God had always said scripturally. They they were he was better than them. Mm-hmm. He he's the son mm-hmm. of God, but mm-hmm. but he he had bested them in every way possible. So when they couldn't uh, couldn't find reason to bring him down as per their religious views, they look for political views, uh, look for political means. And I think about this today that the world we live in is very religious, whether they whether they admit it or not, right? I, I remember uh, reading the book, I believe it's Frank Turek, somebody wrote a book that says, uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. <laughs> and, and, and in that, just exposing the reality that to be a non-believer is a very religious thing. You have to believe by faith in your ideas, uh, even against some things that, that, that are thrown right in your face. But the point that I'm getting at is when Christians are living their lives purely before, before God and rightly before men, as in being um, living at peace with men and, and caring, being a people who say, hey, we, we can't change your mind, but we fundamentally disagree with you. It seems that the approach the enemy has taken from Jesus's day even to now is to incite the political world against those people and try to push them out. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting mm-hmm. parallel. I mean, it's some food for thought, I suppose you would say, in that. Uh, but we're going to learn something really important about Jesus's statements here that uh, really kind of throw a wrench in the idea that Jesus was just trying to subvert the world system. He doesn't seem to be wanting to subvert the world system. He is, of course, establishing his own kingdom. This is true. But uh, it's really interesting how these kingdoms are allowed to play out together Mm -hmm. is where Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with this. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into uh, verse 21. They questioned him saying, teacher, 
we know that you speak and teach correctly. Well, this is nice. This is this is what is called alter casting in mm-hmm. conversation. So what you do is you butter somebody up. Yeah. You 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 kind of get them to to believe that you're on their side and then you and then you try to lure them into another way of thinking. So they say you speak and teach correctly. We we know this. Right? You're awesome. Uh, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. The truth about that statement, whether they meant it right or not, was that was true of him. Exactly <laughs> is, right. They spoke the truth. They just didn't believe. They the just truth. didn't believe the truth. That is so good. And yeah. then verse twenty-two: Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I love verse twenty-three. <laughs> yes. But he detected their trickery. And said to them, um, I don't know how in this instance, I don't know exactly how he detected their trickery. But what we know before is the scripture would say he knew the intentions of their heart or he knew the thoughts of their minds. Mm -hmm. Uh, However he detected their trickery, I believe it's the spirit of God that is is communicating that to him. Mm -hmm. And it works the same way for us. We have the spirit of God. We can use our discernment to detect whether or not people are trying to mess with us. Most certainly. Be very careful when your enemies speak well of you. And Amen. So it is it, here. They thought he would be influenced by some kind of uh, vain flattery or foolish enough to be impressed with the praise that they were giving him. It, 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 it tells me that I, I don't know whether Jesus used any of his godly omniscience or knowing every. I don't, I don't know. But here, I don't know that he would have needed it. I think he could kind of just see what these guys were about when they come up. It's like, that, uh, yeah, you're being a little bit too buttered yes, here. Yeah, that's actually that's actually brilliant. We we sometimes need to work hard at detecting whether or not people are lying to us. But when politicians show up, yeah. it seems like we all know yeah. what's happening. That's actually really good. So verse 23, he says, but he, he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness, uh, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Uh, I love how Jesus asks questions to get to the motives of people, right? And so they say, well, Caesar's. And then he said to him, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying, uh, in a saying, in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, <laughs> they zipped it. <laughs> they became mm-hmm. silent. That's mm-hmm. the NIV, Nathan yes. International <laughs> Version. Anyway, <laughs> so well, we we know from the uh, uh, from the the Roman rule that all of the money, <laughs> technically, and it's the same way in our world today, that all the money actually belongs to the government who mints that money. So this. These coins, these this money, this denarius, belonged technically to Caesar, and 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 uh, there there, he said that taxes should be paid. If he said that taxes should be paid, he could be accused of denying the sovereignty of God over Israel, and he would have made himself unpopular with the Jews. But but if he said they shouldn't be paid, then he's going to incite the. Uh, wrath of the Roman uh, of the Roman government. So he says the truthful thing here. This is so very interesting. Render to Caesar the things that are his, because the money was his. They said it's 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 his. It has his 
likeness on it. It has his name on it. It belongs to him. So uh, they were required to pay the taxes. So if that money is required to pay the taxes, it belongs to Caesar. Give it yes. back to him. Yes. So they, they were so very, uh, I think he turned this completely around on them. They were, they were as, as it says, we, we read that they were unable to even catch him in a saying. They were amazed at his yes. answer. Yes. So I think, there's, I think there's far more than maybe the 21st century view of Jesus took the middle way or Jesus just walked a tightrope here and avoided both extremes. I think there's far more that's going on here uh, in these few short verses. I mean, think about this, five verses, but they are so, so pregnant with meaning. It's unbelievable. So first of all, the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? In today's world, we ask that question because we know that our tax dollars can sometimes go to fund things that we um, that we disagree with. Mm-hmm. So we talk mm-hmm. about things like abortion, or we talk about things like uh, you know uh, monies going to organizations with which we disagree. You know their policies or whatever. Jesus doesn't even directly, as you rightly stated, uh, he doesn't directly answer that question and say, of course, pay taxes. But instead, simply says, whatever you call it, effectively, whatever you call it, it belongs to them. It belongs to them. So if they're asking for it, then give that back. Now, what is really cool is that he he asks for what the image, right, that is that is depicted on this. So we're we're getting to a really important spiritual meaning here, of course, where he says, okay, whose image is on this particular coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar the things that bear his image, right? But here's the issue. You have to render to God the things that bear his image, which is pointing the finger at saying, Sure, the taxes may belong to Caesar, but you belong to God. So we have another issue that's going on here. Now that is a very deep meaning there, but we're gonna we're gonna, you know, we'll explore that more, I think, throughout the rest of the gospel of Luke. But here's what I think is amazing. He does not subvert the kingdom of Rome. Jesus, Jesus is Lord, and in his day to declare Jesus is Lord, this was true historically, if somebody said Caesar is Lord, what you were saying is Caesar is Lord and no one else is. Mm-hmm. When people were declaring that Jesus is Lord, they were declaring Jesus is Lord, but Caesar is not, or Jesus is Lord and the Jewish rulers are not. But Jesus seems to cohabitate with other kingdoms and not have any problem with it. And I think the reason for that is because he knows full well he's in control. He's Lord over that too, right? So he doesn't panic in this. So effectively, Jesus says, fine, pay taxes to Caesar. He doesn't say, wait a second, we're creating a subversive kingdom that's actually going to uproot Rome. Forget Rome. He doesn't say that. He says, sure, sure. If If it bears their likeness, well, then return it to them. That's the way you need to do it. Then he says, but if it's God's, then you render to God the things that are God's, which is that you need to give him you while you give them their money, right? That's important. So so get on with it, guys. Yes. That's so important that you point out that he didn't necessarily, his goal was not to uh, circumvent the Roman uh, government. His goal was not to go in and uh, overthrow the Roman taxation system. 
he he uses an, an interesting word that in, in 25, he says, then render to Caesar. Render means to give back, as in it was his anyway. Yes. It was his anyway. So you give it back to him. And, and, and but then also render or give back to God the things that are God's. Absolutely. So uh, I... I th- I do see the correlation of these people that had the image of God on them. And uh, that, that would mean that they belonged to God, not Caesar. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I would go so far as to say not even we don't even necessarily belong to ourselves in the sense that we, were, we know that the scripture says that we were, we were bought with a price. We are not our, our own. own. Amen. And, and so I, I think what Jesus is saying here that if, if you belong to God, the things that belong to man will work themselves out. And in this case, they did. He said, if it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. Give it back to him because you took it from him anyway. His, his the the money system in that world was completely set up by the Roman government. Yes, so it was his. Absolutely. So uh, I think if we're if we're looking at this under our proper application uh, for us today, we we need to be careful not to miss the point that the Scripture itself tells us to submit to every governing institution. It tells us in Romans 13 that those governing institutions were established by God. That does not mean that if the law or the command that they give violates God's command, we should obey it anyway. We, we are a people who are under order, mm-hmm. and we have no problem with that order. Um, this is one of those, this is one more uh, this is one more tick in the argument that God has no problem, arguably, this side of heaven, God has no problem with hierarchy. Um, we love to hear this squabble in the church today where people say, ah, you know, it's egalitarian. God has moved away from this old system or whatever. Number one, uh, before the fall came, God had established an order. He was not opposed to Adam being the head of his family. That was fine. But we have arguments today that say that's just an old bygone way. And even in the church, people are throwing that kind of stuff out. Well, if you're going to be equal across the board, then you need to be an Anabaptist if you're if you're going to be honest about it. And that is, you need to subvert all kingdom authority. Mm. Those are all products of the fall. That's all a sinful world. You need to ignore Romans 13 and say all authority is not to be listened to or obeyed. The truth of the matter is God has no problem with hierarchy. He has no problem with leadership structures. He wants us to submit to those things to be good citizens here unless those governing authorities have stepped out of bounds, and then he's going to judge them. He's going to correct them. Right here, we see it from Jesus' own mouth. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Mm -hmm. That doesn't bother me. Remember, too, that this, um, or or process this for yourself, that this uh, tax, this kind of rendering to Caesar here was actually a tribute so you could construe this in a Jewish mind. You can construe this very easily as idolatry. Mm. And Jesus actually says, it's his. 
Who cares? Give it to him. He's not saying, therefore, you're an idolater. He's saying it belonged to him. Uh, Let him play his little game where he gives you an image-bearing coin and you give it back to him. Who cares, right? But what you need to do is remember that you belong to God. And so this same idea stretches to us today which says we, we obey every governing institution. We should pray for the rulers who are above us. You notice Peter says this in his epistle, that we are to pray for the leaders, the rulers that are over us. But let's think about the context. When Peter wrote what he said there, pray for the rulers over you, Nero was in charge yeah. over him. Yeah. Who in the world's praying for that guy? Well, a Christian ought to be praying for them because we're called to pray for our enemies. What I find intriguing about that, uh, and we'll move on, but what I find intriguing about that is we are instructed by our Lord to pray for our enemies. And the way we've manipulated that is pray for your enemy as long as they're relatively friendly to you. Your enemy is your enemy. (laughs) They're not friendly to Mm -hmm. you pretty much Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. You are actually praying for those who want you dead at times. You're praying for those who want nothing to do with you. Are we willing to be that people? Mm -hmm. That's what God Mm -hmm. has called us to be. Surrender to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God you because you bear his image. That's important. Yeah. Before we move on, I thought it was so interesting so they were they were unable to uh, catch him in anything. They were amazed at his answer. He clearly did not say, "Don't pay taxes to Rome." And then we're going to find out in chapter twenty-three, very coming very shortly, that they accused him of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Exactly. He said they absolutely accused. They turned this around, his answer around, and said, "See there." He said, "Don't don't pay taxes to the Roman government. Don't give don't don't pay taxes yes. to Caesar." So, they they even resort to just flat out lying yes. when it when it suits their needs. What's amazing is that that then shifts um, that then shifts to them bearing false witness yes. against him, which means the people who are actually in the wrong, violating their own commandments would be mm-hmm, the mm-hmm, Jewish mm-hmm. people. So we roll into verse 27 and boy, oh boy, does this get to be a very fun topic. We're going we're gonna to explain a little bit of history when it comes to this group of people labeled in 27, the Sadducees, and then we're going to start picking apart a very complex passage in 34 through 38 about marriage in the coming kingdom. What a what a strange mm-hmm. topic that is that is laid out here. But here's what verse 27 starts off and says. It says, "Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection." It's important to realize that that was not just a historical uh, addition that we we know of because we read people like Josephus or others. That's in the text of scripture. Yes. They said that there there is no resurrection. Verse 28, and they questioned him saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless and the second and the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died. Now, what's implied there is all seven were unable to bring forth children, Um, uh, right? So leaving, leaving no children. Finally, verse 32, finally the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? 
for all seven had married her. Now, uh, let's let's deal with the Sadducees first. These uh, these people were a very interesting group of people. They're mentioned in Luke. They're mentioned in Acts. They're mentioned uh, several places in Acts. But they they originated. Um, their high priest, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was, I think their high priest was a man by the name of Zadok, yes. or they came under Zadok, which, where was he in the line? He was under David, or he was around David's time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, it, was, it was in Ezekiel 44, okay. so uh, they were called, the, that's where the, the Zadokites was okay. what they were Zadokites. originally called, yes. Yeah, but, the, but he was high priest somewhere around David's time. Yes. Um, that, yes. I'm thinking that. Okay. Yes. So so there so in in claiming that kind of lineage, it would be kind of like what we read in Luke chapter 1 where we hear that that Elizabeth uh, was John the Baptist's mother was actually a daughter of Aaron's daughters. She was she was one of Aaron's daughters descendants. So there's there's something about that connection there. Um, the Sadducees though were enemies, mm-hmm. quite brutal enemies actually of the Pharisees. The Sadducees had become kind of the aristocrats. They were the they were the mm-hmm. they were the money in this situation, not, not not to jump into modern politics at all, but they were the money in this situation. Whereas the Pharisees, uh, if memory serves me, they were the people's party. They were they were they were kind of lay ministers of some kind. So very interesting ideas inside of this. But what we see according to the text, and this is where we get in again to this inductive Bible study, what does the Bible say about the situation? Um, The Sadducees uh, didn't believe there was a resurrection. They also argued that there were no angelic beings, Mm -hmm. that there was no uh, you know, heaven or hell, these kinds of things were, were common to them. So anybody who thinks that these arguments are actually new to the church, no, they're ancient and they're Jewish. Yeah. They're Jewish arguments. From the days of Jesus uh, yeah, and, and beyond and beyond. And these guys were, they were technically, they were the stronger, if you, if the, you mentioned the political parties, that they were the stronger between them and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, were more renowned yeah. But the Sadducees, because they were the uh, they were the kind of the conservative arist- they were the high priestly party. Yes, uh, very worldly minded. They were the ones that were more likely to cooperate with the Roman government. They were the ones that would uh, that would that would uh, somewhat. Uh, lend an ear to Rome if something came up because they wanted to maintain their. They had a very privileged role. They were very powerful men. Very much. But their but their belief system was in stark contrast with 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 the Pharisees and most of the other Jewish people. But they held them in high esteem and they had a lot of power because of their because that that they were the ones that were the high priestly party. So and certainly. The Romans didn't care. They wanted anybody who had yeah. the most power to side with them. So Absolutely. And that may, in fact, be one of the uh, reasons why they held such a, uh, a high place, because if they were the money party, if they were the people who had it, and please hear something very clear in this assessment of uh, of Luke chapter 20, none of this is to be read through the filters of modern political theory. 
to understand that these people had money, to understand that they were what we would call conservative in their ways of thinking is in no way to compare them uh, or, or contrast them necessarily with modern thought. We've got to remember they had a culture, they had a way of thinking, and they operated a certain way. And so all we're saying is that the Sadducees had a particular uh, particular. Uh, stronghold with their wealth and with their abilities and with their positions as priests. They they had a stronghold. The Pharisees were a political, they were a people's party. Um, and again, not to be read through the lens of uh, current, uh, you know, identity politics. It just wasn't the, quite right. the same thing. But uh, they they had their own situation that were go- that were going there. And so the Sadducees come and they want to ask Jesus a question. But here's here's where we have to be cautious in what we're doing here. We have to make sure we understand what they're trying to disprove. Jesus is declaring a resurrection. They don't believe in one, and they're trying to show the absurdity mm-hmm. of the view yes. of resurrection. They are not trying to talk about marriage in heaven, okay? Although Jesus does pick this apart, and he does say things, we have got to be very careful with what we glean from passages of Scripture. We tend to make these things out to say everything but what they say mm-hmm. at times, mm-hmm. So remember what is happening. There is a point that Luke adds that is important. He says, they didn't believe in a resurrection. Keep it in mind Mm -hmm. as they try to pin Jesus back against a wall. They want him moved out of their way as well because he's a threat to them as well. Right? Yes, absolutely. He's a threat to he them is. as well. Yes. So verse 28, they they question him saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us. I like the fact that they include themselves in that, in that body of believers. He said for us, if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless. Now, this idea uh, goes back to Genesis 38. It goes back to Ruth chapter 4. We see an outplay of that. We see it in Josephus's writing in Antiquities. So this idea of a um, a brother, uh, a brother having a wife, uh, taking them on uh, for the sake of a name, for the sake of a continued generational impact, was very common. This is also important. It was not seen to conflict with the prohibitions that we see in Leviticus 18 mm-hmm. or in Leviticus 20, which which talk about uh, you know not sleeping with a living brother's wife. Mm-hmm. That this was adultery. Uh, that right. was adultery. But there was this idea that went forward that you had a responsibility to carry on the name of your family, your family's name. That was important Mm -hmm. uh, in this. It was important for a a brother to carry on that, as you've said. Uh, This this setup was known as a Leverite marriage, or the term Lever, the Hebrew term, uh, it's lover or lever, means brother-in-law. Right. And this a is husband's a brother, right? Exactly. It's a it, this, and this is the idea that's in that's in question now. Many people, many scholars, many well-learned scholars believe that this, as you as you alluded to, that this question that was asked by the Sadducees was one that they asked very often yes. of many people. Most most of the time, it would have been the scribes or the Pharisees. To, to show the re, 
to show the ridiculous nature of a resurrection. How could all this happen was their, right. was their idea. So this was a prime opportunity for yes. them to do the same thing to, yes. to Jesus and, and to say, this is a ridiculous uh, idea of a resurrection. Yeah. Now this brings to bear a really important uh, lesson in modern day debate on biblical ideas, biblical theories. A lot of people use what we, what you would say in Latin as reductio absurdum, and that is you would take something to its most absurd degree to show that it is foolish mm-hmm. or show that it doesn't make any sense. The problem is that 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 method doesn't always work. Mm. And, and and here's here's what I mean by this. Just because you don't understand how it's to play out doesn't mean that it's as absurd as you think. This is why what Jesus goes on to say, it's it's really, really powerful because Jesus goes on to talk about in this life or in that age, in this age or in that age. And what he's pointing out or what he's really picking apart is just because it doesn't work in this age doesn't mean squat for the age to come. Yes. And so he really starts to, to pull them apart. So when we're debating things, you may find a passage of scripture that, and I, and I see this in, in the debates about soteriology all the time. People will say, this run to this degree seems crazy. You know, for example, this is one that's commonly commonly held. If man has free will, then man is a part of his own salvation. He is playing a part in his own salvation. Okay, you're playing a Sadducee game. You are playing a Sadducee game. Why do I say that? Because the God of the universe is the one who sovereignly gave you this ability. This We've got to be careful. Just because it seems absurd to you mm-hmm. does not mean it is truly absurd. So let's, let's get into Jesus' uh, response to this because yeah. it's powerful. Well, first, I think that they... It, look, look at the question that they asked. They could have asked... They could have had the same... Let me back up. This is this somewhat gives us some insight when they so say that there were you know they go down through brother after brother after brother, and and seven they go through seven different brothers. They could have just chosen one, and the and the question would have still been the exact same thing. But but they wanted to get to the point to show how ridiculous this was. So they went, and if that brother dies, then he married then. Then, then the other brother marries this wife. And if that brother dies, yes. then the, the, the next one in line marries this wife. We're going to take it as far as we as can. As far as we can make it, to look, make it look as ridiculous as we can make it look. And then, once again, Jesus turns things around on them uh, and, 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 and turns around on them in a big, big way to help them understand about wh- why, why they're even questioning this. He... He does answer their question about a resurrection. He talks about a resurrection like it's a foregone conclusion. He says, yes. "Hey, guys, there is a resurrection." But, but as you've said, as you've as you've alluded to, this is this passage has created lots of questions in our world, even. Yes, it made many wonder about marriage relationships in heaven and all of those things. And and you've you've well said that we're talking about two different worlds. 
one world war somewhat acquainted with, but the other yes. world war not so much. Yes, absolutely. So we need to carefully study what Jesus is saying. Yeah, no here. doubt. I, I also think it worth worth saying that in the in the last series of podcasts, last week and the week before, we dealt with passages that are commonly viewed as uh, second coming passages or uh, eschatological in their nature. And many times we conflate those two things by by this means. We think that a passage is talking about when Jesus comes again. It can be talking about the end of all things, eschatology, without, be, without talking about uh, a reference it will include his second coming ultimately, but it can talk about eschatology without a reference to Jesus's second coming. So when we get into this talk of this age or the age to come, make no mistake, we are talking about something they had a file folder for, which was the end of all things. All Jews believed in an end of all things, whether if the Sadducees just believed it was over or if the Pharisees believed that there was this great eternal thing. The idea still remains that they believed in an end of all things. And none of this passage talks about Jesus returning in the clouds or something like that. That will happen, but it's just not in this passage. Just something to to keep clear. So let's jump into Jesus's response because this is really powerful. So verse 34, Jesus says to them, because their initial question is, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Okay, the son of man, or the son of this age, sorry, the son of this age marry, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Okay, so what age are we talking about? The age they're presently in. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy, now this is huge and we've got to unpack that all day long. Mm -hmm. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age... Now we're talking about something looking ahead, that age and the resurrection from the dead, the foregone conclusion, whether the Sadducees liked it or not, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So let's just stop right here and wade into one of the most difficult pieces here. Number one, he parallels this age and that age. So remember that. But Jesus seems to be saying that in that age, people are neither married nor given in marriage. Uh, People say, but Nathan, (laughs) Barney, what are you saying? Are you saying that when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be reunited with my husband who passed away or my wife who passed away or or this person or that person? No. Absolutely. I think there's a reunion of all the saints of God. I believe that that is the case. But there are many varying opinions on what takes place. There is either the view that, no, we are completely contented in the presence of God the Father. Now, I love that idea. I love that idea on its surface because I do believe that there's nobility in that idea. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it, and I'll I'll share with you why I don't agree with it, but I don't necessarily agree with we don't need a, a wife or a husband in heaven because we're completely contented in God. Adam and Eve were created in a world where the fall had not happened yet, okay? And God could have said, Adam's good. He doesn't need a wife because he needs to be contented in me. 
Could, could have said that, okay? Um, but he didn't. He actually said he needs help. Now, just because I'm arguing this, please hear me, doesn't mean that this is the view you should hold at all. I'm simply suggesting some ways of looking at it. God, in the garden, created for Adam a helper because he could not do this alone. Now, it could be that what Jesus says in verse 36 alludes to what is different about the new heaven and the new earth versus this world. And that is this, that when he says, for they cannot even die anymore, because they are like angels, uh, they're, they, are the sons of, they are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. He uses this as a proof point by saying that why would they need to be married? They can't even die anymore. It may be that Jesus here is saying the reason why marriage was given in the garden, and this, would, this is something that I have to wrestle with from my viewpoint, um, is to say the reason why marriage was given in the garden was because God wanted... Uh, progeny, he wanted these, these, these offspring to continue on knowing that the fall was coming. That could be the case. Again, some of this is a, a really heady. Here is my point. Here's my view on this. I believe that the reason why we will ne- neither be married or given in marriage in, we will neither marry, it doesn't say we will not be married in heaven. It says they will neither marry, that is the act of getting married won't be in heaven, nor be given in marriage, right? I believe that that is there because those who are married in this life are one. Mm. The scripture says that God makes two one. I believe that's what you see in the garden with Adam and Eve. The two parts, they become one. I believe that the two become one. This is a big issue and a hard thing to wrap our minds around. But let's not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is actually not trying to make the case for marriage or not marriage. He does state it. He does state it pretty clearly, it would appear. But his whole point is your argument is a moot argument yes. because it doesn't exist that way in the future kingdom. So yes. I don't know, but I'd yes. love to hear your That's thoughts a, on it because well, this is challenging. I, it, is, it is a challenging subject. And I think that uh, Jesus brings a couple of things into play that the Sadducees didn't even, didn't even ask him about. He, when he brings angels into the mix, as an example, <laughs> he says in verse 36, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God. So being called sons of God and sons of the resurrection, those, first of all, were not titles given to angelic beings in the new in the new testament now keep in mind that the pharisees did not believe or i'm sorry the sadducees did not believe in angels so they they had raised no question to him about angels so they got a little bargain here they got more than they bargained yes. for but they because they denied that angels even existed exactly so jesus here i'm sure that this stretched their mind, as much as it stretches ours sometimes, the Lord not only spoke of angels as being actual beings, but he, he says here, he alludes to that, that men shall be equal to angels in the hereafter. Uh, and, and if, if there is, think about this, think about this. If there is, if there's no death, uh, in the life to come, there's no need for procreation. 
necessarily. Exactly. Uh, so I, I, there's a lot in this, and I, 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 I can tell you that it is, as you've said, it is battled uh, back and forth between many, many scholars and, and people and commentators, and, and it is a very difficult passage. Yes. But, but, but again, as you've said, this is not about how is it going to be in heaven necessarily. Yes. It's about explaining to these guys that, first of all, their question is a, a moot point, that, that, and, and he, t- he, he takes the opportunity to say, and oh, by the way, guys, uh, there are going to be angels there, just yes. so you know that. There, there are angels. He didn't even... He didn't, he didn't bat an eye. He knew what these guys believed. He knew exactly what they believed. You said it before that Jesus Jesus just weighs right into this with resurrection, a foregone conclusion, and angels, yes. a foregone yes. conclusion. It doesn't matter uh, what these Sadducees were thinking. He just goes right into it. So a couple of pieces that I think we need to put together, and maybe we'll, we'll talk more, depending on the time, about this idea of marriage. Um, this interesting verse in 35, or this interesting phrase in 35, when he says, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Okay, so so this is where we take a, a statement of scripture and we have to look to the whole of God's word to understand this uh, this meaning. We do not believe, as people who believe we're saved by grace through faith, we do not believe that somebody is um, earning their worth, they're making themselves worthy, but Jesus himself says those who are considered worthy to attain to that age are the ones who are who are going to be there. Now, what we remember from the scripture is that those who are considered worthy are those who through repentance and faith enter God's kingdom. We saw this back in Luke 18 verses 25 and 26. Uh, Luke is no universalist by any means whatsoever. I mean, think about that statement. He just flat out said the people who are there are those who are worthy. Now, what makes one worthy is the great debate. And what makes one worthy is repentance and faith. That repentance and faith, those things have been through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power of God's word. Um, in some ways, this would, this would lean towards a more Lutheran understanding. But in many ways, that gospel is what brings about... Uh, what brings about that turn. You have to remember the goodness of God. You have to know of the goodness of God. You have to know of what he's called you to and what he's called you away from uh, in order to do this. So the first thing is that those who are worthy were those who uh, were repentant Mm -hmm. and they believed by faith. I believe that Jesus is putting that there because these people were arrogant. Yes. And they did not want to hear that. They were worthy in their own ways. So by saying, listen, first of all, let's just deal with who's going to be there before you go nitpicking whose son is whose son is whose son in heaven, okay? Or whose, whose wife is whose wife in heaven. Before you go nitpicking that, let's make sure we understand something. Not everybody's going to get there. Yeah. 
the worthy are going to get there. Mm-hmm. And those worthy are repentant people, and you aren't them right now. <laughs> right? So, wow, those are them's fighting words, that, as we say a lot. It, exactly. I, the, and, and Jesus goes on to remind them. And it, that so, he taught them so much with one question that they asked. <laughs> and and, and when, you, when we know the, the background and the intent of their heart when they ask this, we know what they were up to. We, we see they made it as complicated as they could, but Jesus reminds them in, in many, many ways that life in the resurrection is quite different from this life. Amen. Quite different from this life. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't just merely continue this world and the arrangements that we have, but it's, it's, uh, it's life of a completely different order. Yes. Completely different order. I would also throw into this equation, it is, uh, this is, since we're talking about the end of all things or eschatological ideas, we have to think about uh, people's end times views. So there are people who believe that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay, fine. We have premillennialists, we have amillennialists, and then we have postmillennialists. And oftentimes in the postmillennial idea, this concept, their view is that we as kingdom workers are coming together and building a new future, and we absolutely transition into that great heavenly newness uh, because God is remaking the new uh, the heavens and the earth through us. Now, I believe that God is remaking a new heaven and a new earth, but I don't believe it through that post-millennial view. And here's one of the real reasons for that. Um, there has to be a resurrection of all things. There has to be a time when we come back from the dead to life. If we just moved straight into this eschatological future where people are neither married nor given in marriage, it would be really strange for a married couple to be walking into that new future but all of a sudden, Jesus says, but by the way, you're not married anymore. Yeah. That's a real strange idea. Mm-hmm. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, where did he just go? It's fine. These are just weird things that uh, <laughs> that people talk about and discuss. And it's one of those things that fascinates me yes. uh, to no end. But here's the idea here. In the future, people are said to neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore. That was a proof point to Jesus somehow, right? They can't even die anymore. What would they need to be married for? Why would you need procreation? Why would you need to continue a family name? Why would you need that? Those are all at least implied ideas in this text. So then he says, but they are like angels. He doesn't say they are angels. He says they are like angels and are sons of God. Now that makes us not like angels. What a powerful picture, right? Being sons of the resurrection. Jesus was the firstborn among the dead, and we are the, the brothers and sisters who follow in line with that. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised Even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And look at his his reasoning here. It's fascinating Mm -hmm. because I don't think if Jesus hadn't said it, I don't think we would have reasoned this. He said, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live in him. Okay, what, what do you mean by this? He didn't say... He's the God of Abraham, or was the God of Abraham, was the God of Isaac, and was the God of Jacob. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob. What does that mean? It means in some form of Jesus' teaching, they are resurrected. Uh, They are alive. I think that goes back to prove that 
uh, why we see Moses and why we see uh, Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I believe that these are alive people. Uh, yes. I believe that they, in some ways, they're living. So in in verse 30, 37, he takes an opportunity that it's easy to miss if we don't if we don't understand these guys the Sadducees only believed that the that the books up to Moses were the only legitimate only. scripture they only and and so so he he shows them proves to them by quoting Moses and what story in Moses that that the dead are raised yes he so he's like and so by the way guys I know you it, in his mind I I just I can just ima- just imagine him thinking. Okay, and that little deal about you only going up to Moses and, all, and you don't believe anything beyond beyond that, Moses proved that the dead are raised. Yes. So I've I've killed two of your arguments completely here yes. already. You and notice you notice Jesus's Jesus's attitude is not to say um, all of the Old Testament books are valid, and just because you don't believe them, I don't care. I'm going to quote to you from Malachi. He doesn't do that. He he is okay with condescending to the attitudes and opinions of people. This actually gets into a, a great discussion of, uh, of apologetics, whether or not we should use uh, different methods of apologetics. Jesus uses very different methods of apologetics. So do the apostles. I mean, you see Paul on the Areopagus, and he comes along and says, what do your guys say? Don't they say this and this and this and this? Well, let me tell you who God is based on those ideas. Let me tell you the truth. This right here, he says, fine, you don't want to believe anything else? Then I'll prove it to you Mm -hmm. by showing Mm -hmm. you what your your boy Moses says, who ultimately, whether you know it or not, is actually my boy Moses, not your boy (laughs) Moses. He's on my side, not your side. So verse 38, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Somehow they are alive. I don't think that their bodies are resurrected yet. I don't believe that they, I believe that they will go through the physical resurrection at some point, right? But um, at some point, in some way they're alive for all live to him. Verse 39, some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. I love it when people can't answer your, uh, they can't refute your answer. So they're just like, hey, th- that's a good point. Yeah. And, and what they're thinking is, dang it, I didn't yeah. think about that, right? I didn't think about that. Yes, that happens a lot. But it, it seems, it, isn't it, isn't it uh, uh, notable that the, the scribes, Jesus had been, essentially speaking, he'd been speaking to everyone, but he had been essentially speaking to the Sadducees. And the scribes chime in and say, uh, wow, good job. <laughs> well spoken, Master. Yes. Because in in many ways, he was, he was affirming some things that they believed, and he shot down some things that they believed as well, but he completely shot down many of the things that yes. the Sadducees believed. But the scribes wanted to say, all right, uh, good job. Yes. Good job. Yes. What so, else can they say? So maybe if, if it is, and, and scholars debate on this, whether or not there could have been Sadducees that were scribes, but doesn't matter. What seems to be happening here is the old adage that my enemy's enemy is my friend. Yeah. And so the scribes are like, well, he put them in their place. Way to go. We don't agree. We're confused at what's happening right yeah. here, right? So so they, they say well-spoken, right? And then verse 40, they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. Verse 41, then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? 
For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gosh, I just, ha- I just have to stop. I know that I probably harp on this too much, and maybe I'm doing this out of selfishness because I'm trying to prove myself or prove a point here, <laughs> but Jesus is not afraid to make people upset. Right. Okay? He's not. Now, do I think that Jesus, uh, you know, there's a, there's a passage in scripture that says, you know, that our conversation should always be seasoned with salt. Jesus himself tells us this, or or that our, our speech should be gracious, that we should, we should um, I love the statement that says, you know, a gentle word turns away wrath and all of the, by the way, that's an Old Testament passage, a gentle word turns away wrath. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't actually go by that all the time? Because it's not an all the time thing. Right. It is true that a gentle word turns away wrath, but there is a time when a harsh word is necessary. And we really struggle with this in the modern church. If you read the New Testament from from cover to cover, if you will, if you read from Matthew to Revelation, here's what you're going to come away with. You're going to come away with passages where Paul says to the redeemed, born again, new creation church, he's going to say, hey, your faith, hope, and love is amazing. I am really proud of you guys. You're doing a great job. But you're going to read at least as many times, if not, and I've I've looked at it enough, if not two-thirds of the time, Paul and Jesus and writers in the New Testament saying, what are you thinking? Mm -hmm. What is your problem? Knock it off. Stop living like the world. Don't do this. Don't do that. This idea that there is only one way to communicate to the church, and that is through warm, fuzzy, nice, soft words, is total nonsense. Jesus doesn't back up your philosophy, Paul doesn't back up your philosophy, and neither does Peter. But right here, it's Jesus, and he just looks at him and goes, look out for those guys, guys, right? Like, avoid them like the plague. Wow, you want to make people mad? Just do what Jesus did. He certainly doesn't take his foot off the gas in 41. <laughs> That's a great way to put like, it. He's uh, like, this is, uh, and the question, I, I think he I think he was ready for them to explain to them, how is it then that they say that the Christ is, is David's son? And he goes on to explain. He said, guys, if, if you believe all this stuff that you're, that you're telling everybody, explain these things to me. Gosh. How is it that that, that could be? And and he goes on to say, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your your enemies uh, a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? That's a (laughs) question. It's a simple enough question. And one that in Jesus' mind would have said, okay, guys, if if you know, if you know so much, then explain how this could be. What's going on here? Yes. And again... They say nothing. They say they don't have an answer. Uh, I I believe that that's kind of why Jesus just answers his own question, right? When he says, how is it that they can say? And And then he quotes the passage. And then he does ask another question. Therefore, David calls him Lord. 
And how is he his son? Like, how does this happen? Knowing that they're not going to give him an answer. You notice that Luke doesn't say, and they, and they had no answer. It just, he just moves on and he turns to the disciples and says, beware of these people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They, they have a lot of assertions yeah. about my kingdom, about the way the world works, about the way theology works, about the way I work. They've got a lot of assertions. The problem is their own scriptures don't bear out their idea. It's again why I bring up this kind of let's be let's be softer on everybody approach. The scriptures don't even bear out that idea. I'm not saying that there isn't isn't need for that or isn't a place for that. We can't do what these people did. Jesus points them out as a problem. So he goes, "Beware of these scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces." And chief, uh, and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Make no mistake, these are still covenanted people of God, mm-hmm. but they want nothing to do with the God that they supposedly made a covenant with. This is why in our previous chapter... They were mad because Jesus was talking about them. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. were infuriated because they realized these are the people, make no mistake, these are the people who didn't want God ruling over them. Mm -hmm. They wanted to do it their own way. Mm -hmm. We have that problem today. If we're not careful, Mm -hmm. we want to rule our own kingdoms. What a tragedy. You know, Jesus got to the heart of of a matter, as he always does, pretty, pretty quickly. If they had known... And I had to think this through. If they had known who Jesus was, they would have been able to answer that question. Yes. They would have been, he's saying, do you really, you don't really know who I am, do you? You don't know. And, and it was obvious that they didn't, or maybe they had inclina- inclination and would not, many times they would not believe, but he got to the heart of it. Do you really know who I am? Because if they had known who he was, yes. that would have been a relatively easy question to answer. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So uh, in this in this section, we, we've covered a whole lot of stuff, and I just want to make sure that we briefly recap it. When it comes to the tribute paid to Caesar, when it comes to this idea of taxes, it's really important that the, that the overarching spiritual theme is we give to the world what belongs to the world. Just, just pay it back to them. All of that stuff bears image of men, okay? But what bears the image of God needs to go to God. Second piece that we covered in that is that it's not, uh, Jesus's kingdom is not a, um, a, not a direct overthrow of the Roman world. And it moves into today's world too, that it is not a direct overthrow. If our world causes, asks us to violate God's plan, we are to obey God rather than man. That's very clear. But God himself said, obey the governing authorities. They're there for a really important reason inside of your life. And so he doesn't overthrow Caesar in this statement, uh, but instead says, but I'm actually Lord over all. I'm, I'm even Lord over Caesar. I can deal with Caesar. You don't have to worry about this. Now, that makes the, the, the people trying to back Jesus into a corner really mad because they can't do what they came to do, which is to pin him to a wall or to a cross, quite literally, is what they're, they're about to do. 
Then we move into this Sadducee thing, and it's important, even though there's really great discussion about marriage and heaven and the new heaven and the new earth and eschatology and where we view these particular things. All these are important matters, make no mistake. But the point here is they didn't believe in a resurrection, and Jesus proved to them that a resurrection mm-hmm. is beyond a shadow of doubt. Okay, so so he proves that situation to them, and like you you added just in in that last uh, bit, Barney, they they pushed this idea of you don't even understand your own scriptures, mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. don't even understand your own scriptures, uh, you're you're misinterpreting them, and then finally that warning to the disciples. And I think that warning is to us again still today. Beware of the people who walk around in their high and mighty, I am more spiritual, I've got this whole situation figured out. Meanwhile, they're not loving, they're devouring widows. For appearance sake, they're praying in front of everybody. They tell everybody all of their great deeds and they and they lay it out there before all mankind to see. Jesus actually says they'll receive greater condemnation. God knows the heart of people like this. Absolutely. So, that's a that's a that's a stark warning and one that we need to be completely aware of. Amen. Well, that's it for today, guys. And if you would, please like and share this podcast with your friends. And finally, remember 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work.